Welcome to A View in Focus, the show where we talk with entrepreneurs from technology startups and high-growth companies. We'll get to hear their stories about entrepreneurship, leadership, strategy, management, and fundraising. I'm your host, Dino De Palma, Managing Partner at Two North Advisory, where we work alongside entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and PE firms as their strategic advisors. In today's episode, we have longtime friend and guest, Jim Tolan, Managing Partner at True North Advisory and former CFO at Broadsoft. Welcome, Jim. Hello, Dino. Awesome to be here. It's great uh, to be, you know, doing this uh, podcast with you. We uh, work together on a daily basis, but, you know, we're hoping to learn a little bit more about the CFO journey, uh, learn a little bit more and, and coach, hopefully, our viewers who are trying to build companies on, on, on how to improve the odds of, uh, of hopefully making it. But, you know, before we get started, uh, I've known you for a long time, uh, but, you know, I don't know really sort of the, the younger version of Jim. So maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what it was like. Uh, give us a, a little context on uh, who Jim, how we got to, to see this version of Jim. So, uh, so I'm an un unusual uh, thing. I am a uh, D.C. area native. There aren't that many of us are tr truly native from the D.C. area. And my mom actually was born and raised in D.C., so second generation uh, D.C. area. I was a child of the suburbs, grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, not too far from uh, our Broadsoft offices, which was a, a little weird for me uh, when I first joined Broadsoft. Um, and uh, as a uh, slightly funny aside, you know, I sort of had a classic, I guess, American suburban uh, upbringing uh, and was, you know, as a kid got reasonably close to my parents' friends. So post going to the DC area, I lived in Asia, I lived in Europe, uh, you know, other parts of the U.S., and came back. I'm now in still in the DC area in Virginia, and I would see you know my dad's friends now in their 80s, and they would go, I can't believe you moved across the river because of course Virginia is south of the Potomac. So I'm like, I, I lived in Japan, I lived in the UK, and you're surprised that I went from Maryland to Virginia. Anyway, it can be kind of a parochial place, but uh, that was uh, that was the start. And what did you do for fun growing up? Like, were you, you know, musically inclined, sports, both? Like, what what was it like? Yeah, I um, yeah, I was pretty. Uh, well, it's a, I guess it was a combination of uh, my big sport was tennis. I was actually captain of my tennis team in high school, um, and uh, you know, continued to be a lifelong uh, tennis player. Um, you know, lots of other sports, and then. My dad was a senior guy in the federal government, and I kind of grew up as a, I always thought I'd be a policy wonky guy before I got lured into business. So, uh, um, so I did, I was, you know, I was active, uh, you know, as a high schooler in, you know, the internal and Capitol Hill, things like that. Were you, were you involved in uh, politics as well, living in D.C. early on? Uh, more of policy than politics, um, and uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's sort of just you know, kind of a wonky guy at, at my core. And you know, having the opportunity, you said you lived in in parts of uh, Asia, Japan, and 
in Europe. Um, how do you think that sort of uh, impacted your your career and, and shaped some of your decision making? What did that bring to the table, Jim? Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting because I was think I knew we were chatting and uh, there was it was it, it kind of start it started uh, in college. I went to a little school in South Davidson and. Um, I only, I, I thought I was going to go to graduate school in economics and uh, I interviewed with one company, uh, it was called Strategic Planning Associates, it was this boutique strategy consulting firm. And, uh, and I was one for one, I got the job and then they opened a, an office in London um, nine months after I started and I was the junior person that went over to London. And that really started my, you know, business focus and my uh, international focus. And I think it, uh, you know, I, I think the living abroad, working abroad, um, you know, being really a globe, global citizen, you know, helps everything from strategy to understanding markets to working with people. So that, move was pretty instrumental in my early 20s for me. And and uh, yeah, and I could see that, especially at least our collaboration at Acme and Broadsoft uh, with global companies. And, uh, you know, at Broadsoft, you guys were able to uh, really sort of penetrate the, the global market. So I could see how that experience would uh, would make uh, a big difference. And, and, and how did you sort of transition from the strategy consultancy side to having a senior executive role as a, as a, as a CFO? How did that transition happen, Jim? Yeah, it, and, and I will say as a side note, uh, Dino, it, it also resulted in you and I running into each other at <laughs> innumerable hotel lobbies and airports across the world as, uh, uh, you guys built Acme, and uh, Mike Scott and I and team built Broadsoft. I, I always hear one of you like as it coming across. I'd either be yelling your name, or you'd be yelling my name across, and we'd be sort Correct. of crossing paths, <laughs> which was always a lot of fun. Oh, who are you going to see? Oh, Orange. Yeah. Oh, I just saw them. <laughs> we compare notes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it's a great question. What happened? I I uh, when I was doing some of the consulting work. Um, oh, I actually was the first person, I somewhat, I broke all the rules at our consulting company and went out and used my own credit card and bought us this brand new thing called a personal computer and helped drag the consulting firm into, you know, going to PCs and the, uh, and I just, I kind of fell in love with the tech business. I went from there, uh, and got my MBA and, uh, you know, just really wanted to play in technology and out of uh, getting my MBA, I joined Morgan Stanley doing uh, technology banking. And so did IPOs, worked with entrepreneurs, uh, did a fair amount of uh, merger and acquisition work. And, uh, and, but I really found that working closely with companies was much more interesting and what they were dealing with from a management strategy standpoint than kind of intrinsically finance and and in fact morgan stanley as i got more senior coached me that i needed to push off um you know working really closely with the clients to the sort of execution teams 
and need to be out there basically selling more. And I'm like, well, I like working with the entrepreneurs. And, uh, and so, you know, I, uh, I, that's, uh, I, I decided that when I got the opportunity, uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, I, I was going to jump from banking to, uh, you know, going into management. And so that has worked out swimmingly. That was a long, long time ago and, you know, many tech companies ago. So, uh, but that's, I, I, uh, I, I was an investment banker. I always say I'm a reformed investment banker and, uh, you know, and, and delighted to have taken those skills and then really worked it into being a CFO. And you mentioned something, you know, around selling in, in office, often, you know, in, in tech companies, there could be some contentious relationships between the, the CFO and global VP of sales or CRO. We certainly never had that. We, we collaborated very, very effectively. And I have to say our, our God rest his soul, uh, Peter Minahan at Acme, I had the same relationship with. Um, what's that balance, right? By being... The, the right CFO, obviously, you're the known as the numbers guy, but really being able to be part of the sales team and and, and the go to market. Uh, how do you find that balance, Jim? Like, I, I'm sure our listeners are would be interested in, to get your view on that. So uh, they may not be able to see it, but you can. Here's my prop, you know, is broad <laughs> soft mug, certified sales professional. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, the. So yeah, well, yes, I, I, I agree. You you and I had a particularly close uh, relationship working together, and I think that's the key. There needs to be alignment. There needs to be trust. Um, and there are going to be places, there are going to be areas of um, not necessarily conflict, but you know, the, 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 the sales leader uh, has a, a certain job to do and has to deliver a number and you know the cfo needs that salesperson to deliver that number because they're on the hook too but at the same time you know the cfo is really the i think of it as the e economic conscious of the business and uh and so there can be tension there but i think again um you know transparency openness and wor working together because there should be alignment it should not be a um uh, structurally uh, tension-filled relationship. And at some level, if it is, I think that's an issue. Um, it, may, it may be the issue for both or one or the other, but if there's not pretty genuine alignment and collaboration, I, I, that's, a, that's almost a governance problem to me. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think companies where that, that relationship is very strong and they're aligned on, on the mission. Might disagree at times on how to get there, but truly aligned on the mission, you, you usually have uh, a, a much better result, which, you know, at the same time, and how do you view your structure of your organization between your role and the controller, for example? So let's go down more into your organization. Uh, what would you expect from the controller in your organization as opposed to what the CFO's role is? Yes, and uh, you know, I was always a pretty external-facing CFO, um, and I uh, whether it was in front of investors, in front of um, potential M and A partners or business development partners, or with customers. I, I mean, I will say one of the things I loved about Broadsoft was um, that there was 
real demand for me to be out with customers. It wasn't me pushing. And, uh, you know, that was one of my favorite parts of the job is getting on the road and um, being in front of customers and helping our sales team close deals. Um, And I I think I was a much better CFO for it, too, because I I had that customer use, customer customer perspective for, for, for Broadsoft. And so uh, almost by nature and structure, and, and, and I come up from the strategy and banking side, uh, not from the uh, CPA audit side. And so first and foremost, you know, the controller needs to re- really be the company leader for that. But I, I always encourage my whole team to um, be very uh, horizontal across the organization, not just be in uh, silo finance. And, um, and so... Uh, you know, you know, my longtime controller, uh, our uh, North American controller, were both our UK controller, were all very involved in, with the sales organization, with revenue recognition. It, you know, early on as they're structuring deals. Um, you know, again, very external within Broadsoft from a you know kind of a budget and spending standpoint. And you know that to be honest, the controller. You know, control had a bit be a bit more of a hard ass where I could be a little more um, uh, open field running, and you know, and that that was not really attention, but that tension at, at some level was good because um, you know there were just times where I thought it was a reasonable business risk, and my controller's job was to make sure I understood it was a business risk, and we could take it from there. Yeah, and in startups, I mean, it's all about how much risk you want to take, right? From the contract to the sales, how much you spend. It's, uh, uh, you know, the legal profession, they're, they're, they're very adverse to risk. And it's, I think, our responsibility to figure out how much we want to take. Yeah, and in some ways, I think that's a great point, you know, in some ways, that was, uh, you know, that was a very common role for, for me at Broadsoft as we were getting contracts done or deals done with customers. Um, because I really was the, the person in the organization that could u- ultimately decide that, that, you know, oof, I don't like that um, indemnification provision in a contract with, uh, you know, choose your humongous, you know, large service provider. But if you could whittle it down and manage around it, um, there, there are times that I, I could make that call and it was really just, you know, Mike Tesla or me that were making those calls and, you know, he just assumed I'd do it. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so I played that role quite a bit. And when you, when you think about the journey, right, uh, obviously you've had an amazing career, uh, but a good chunk of, of our journey together was between Broadsoft and Acme, uh, you know, maybe for the audience of, you know, going through being a smaller company, you know, that's private to then going public. Uh, that's a big role as a CFO. Maybe walk us through that journey a little and some of the lessons learned and, and what, what are the major changes as you go from, from private to public? Show? Yeah, so, yeah, the demands uh, are, are pretty different. I mean, when you're private and small, you know, I mean, there are times you're worrying about payroll, right? You're, uh, uh, you know, you got to, uh, you know, the you got to get that company to pay their bill so that you make sure you have a, enough to pay your people. And, you know, I remember at Broadsoft, 
uh, in you know Q3 2008, all of a sudden you know Lehman goes bankrupt and the world ends, and you know just trying to keep at the time very small broadsoft um, afloat was a, was a challenge. Um, you know the the flip side is the the demands on you as an executive team, as a CFO, when you're you're both you mentioned both uh, global and public uh, are almost transcendently uh, more hot, higher than as a private company, and uh, the jobs are similar, but they're actually public company CFO is a different job than a private company CFO. And you have public company investors, uh, your stock price is a daily grade on your business. Um, the compliance requirements are uh, onerous, uh, uh, you know, are significant. Um, the disclosure requirements, you're constantly having to work that with not just you, but the rest of the team. Uh, and the global aspect, uh, um, it, it helps build a great company, but the flip side is uh, the um, sort of the uh, compliance exposure is just bigger. Um, you know, you have employees in all these countries. There are compliance elements in each country. I mean, it all you know that 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 all adds to the complexity of a public company. And at the same time, you don't want to lose. Uh, the value from a strategy standpoint are really driving the business forward. So you have all this um, sort of sort of compliance scaffolding that you have to do. It's almost like uh, the you know Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. Like the numbers have to be right. There can be no control issues. You have to do a four or four audit. It doesn't matter. But at the same time. You know, you want to be driving the business strategically. You want to be uh, in front of the right M&A targets. You want to be helping the sales organization close the next big deal. And so uh, it's just, uh, I mean, it's a, you know, being a public company CFO is a big job. It, it, it is a big job. And, and so you talked about compliance because I, I recall uh, during our acquisition uh, by Oracle, the amount of international compliance questions uh, that we went through. You know, when you're doing business in different countries, uh, Jim, how, how do you maintain the integrity of the company's values, ensuring that you are compliant? Like, what, what do you do? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's the sort of actual structure of, uh, of how you transact. And then uh, there's the more cultural, um, you know, sort of it starts at the top sense of uh, a, uh, you know, a company's values and the employee, the, the values you, you want your employees to have. And uh, we were pretty conservative on that first part. You know, we ran all contracting collections and really, um, uh, you know, money uh, out of uh, our U.S. headquarters. Um, you know, we, 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 and then we would just fund our international subsidiaries, which was mostly um, a payroll expense. So that, that it, 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 there are uh, pros and cons for doing that and not, uh, as opposed to being more decentralized, but from a control standpoint, um, 
we felt like that was a uh, that was a superior model. Um, and then I think from a you know kind of a cultural what's expected, um, it that's a executive team management team instilling the right um, values, behaviors, and and acting quickly if uh, there are situations that are. Um, potentially in violation of that. And so I think part of it was, you know, you, Mike, Scott, me, uh, uh, the rest of the executive team, we were out with employees worldwide a lot. We tried to communicate, uh, you know, often and early. We, we uh, uh, you know, we, we tried to make employees feel like they were uh, insiders, that they weren't, it wasn't just a job, it was, it was a mission. And you know, really, a, a a culture of transparency and openness, and uh, and I think that's you know, I think of it as a, l a little bit like um, you know, the magic of DNA in your body is every cell in our body has the same DNA code, even though it has, they each have different jobs to do. And really good corporate communication is like creating that um, corporate DNA in every employee. So. You know they have all different jobs to do but they have the same kind of common base yep and, and i think uh you know at, at, at broadsoft that was clear that, that that we had it uh you know another area and, and you had mentioned earlier i'll go back a little i recall being in new york uh with you we had just met with some investment bankers and then we, we went out for uh a dinner at, at uh at milos um which yeah. i still remember was, was really really good uh but you know how a lot of wine a lot of wine for sure how, how do you keep um you know when you're you're a public company there's the pressure of the number uh from a quarterly perspective there's the long-term strategy uh there's obviously keeping the investors happy and aligned with the strategic vision how do you balance that with the quarterly pressure uh how did you deal with the investment bankers i'm sure the the audience you know as folks are getting a little larger would would like some some insights on in the, into that world jim it's hard and uh but i i think for mike and me it was always um the right you know the right business decision first like you do the right thing for the company and the business uh and with the hope that the stock price will follow um and you know we were certainly cognizant of what the wall street expectations were for us and you know we went from a small pretty unfollowed company initially uh once we went public in fact uh people started following us a little bit more and they didn't really know what we did but they said oh it's just like acme but the multiples better and that was that was pretty helpful but we you know you really have to lean in on what's the right business decision not what makes your quarter and you know wall street constraints certainly inform that you you can only spend so much uh from a budget standpoint in a year you know you got to make sure you have alignment on uh on you know on cash in and, and revenue um and that's part of the trade-offs that an executive team makes and a cfo helps an executive team make but um you know you and it was hard, but you got you just you, you can't run the business for Wall Street. You got to run the business to create value. 
Yeah, I like that. I, I think, you know, in, in, in the words you use, create value, I think will serve you, you well uh, long term. You know, the other area I wanted to touch, uh, which uh, we've both been through, is uh, acquisitions, both uh, Broadsoft acquiring uh, companies and then ultimately Broadsoft being acquired by, by Cisco. Um, you know, what's that process like um, on both sides? Like, maybe give us some hints on, you know, as you're looking at uh, companies to acquire, what the process should be like. And, and I know it's a big question and, and, and how you ran the process when we were being acquired. Maybe some words of wisdom would, would, uh, would be great. Sure. So, uh, you know, we, we did, uh, I think we did 20 acquisitions during my tenure. Um, mostly small, um, uh, often tuck in uh, uh, product capability kind of transactions. And I think, it, you know, it doesn't, you don't start with an acquisition strategy, you start with a strategy that acquisition fits in. And it's really a uh, build versus, I, I say build versus rent versus buy, you know, renting being uh, some kind of OEM relationship. And we were pretty disciplined about viewing these acquisitions in that um, prism and um, you know and I, and, and I do think again that it's uh, you know making sure it's the right product the right team uh, the right technology team um, perhaps it's a geographic expansion that helps um, the uh, having a strong sort of cu cultural corporate values is really key because um, the, the value isn't in the acquisition or in the uh, transaction, uh, it's in the implementation of the team and, and really getting, uh, you know, alignment within the organization, you know, both bringing the new business in and making the new business feel like they're really part of it. And, and I will say one of the things that I was pretty proud of with us is at the time of the Cisco acquisition, the uh, number of the CEOs of acquired companies that were uh, senior executives for us at Broadsoft. And, you know, the, the norm is you buy the company, CEO runs off into the sunset, rides off into the sunset. Uh, and, uh, and they were the CEOs of m many of the companies we bought were key parts of the executive team. Uh, on, on the Cisco side, um yeah it's all i mean it, it's always hard uh being uh, acquired you you have uh you you part of you thinks it's really the right outcome for the company at the time you know certainly once you sell a share of stock and certainly once you go public um you are for sale um you know that's just a reality of the um you know our you know you know, our capitalism and uh, yeah. Yeah. stock companies. Um, and so that, uh, and it was that year was interesting. We got um, more inbound interest that year than we had had before. Um, we'd had some in the past, uh, but uh, this was the kind of the most, the most energized. And it was a combination of private equity and um, strategic buyers. And, you know, I think we all felt through the process that Cisco was the best home for the business. Um, but they are a 
mighty big entity to navigate around and be acquired by um and uh and so yeah, it had some drama they very they're very thorough from a due diligence standpoint they you know we had our big um sort of kind of end of the process you know get all their guys and us together yeah. on deep due diligence and they, they sent 70 people from their uh acquisition and uh implementation teams <laughs> I, I i remember that actually because i thought it was part of the un i had a mic and we had to like like poke our mic to be able to speak it was all around the marriott table it was uh not, not that 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 was big <laughs> uh, yeah and uh you know and to be honest at the time uh C cisco was much more used to buying private companies and uh you know and they they're um you know their their sort of public company acquisition muscles had atrophied a bit and so you know that caught, we had to sort of manage around that said so, no 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 we're public we you know and in some ways they, they we, we ran them through our control processes our you know a lot a lot of the processes we had in the business and they were like oh those are better than ours or oh i you know yeah and even on the train once we got the deal done they had this whole transition structure which is really good uh and uh kind of a, a hierarchy and so you know I, I i mirrored that on our side and and they said oh well you don't really need to do that i'm like oh we, we did we've already done it <laughs> and thank goodness um because i think it really helped the transition and again they just weren't used to i think a company that had, was as at some level mature as, as we we had become as a public company um and so uh and then there were times where you know even in working that transition you know there'd be a set of sort of outputs or whatever it was we were trying to work collectively we'd be done and they go oh jim that's awesome but slow down man we're not ready and it would be really on on, on their side so it was you know, cisco's a it, it's a very big beast but no, i think no. it was a good home for our business I, I think it was the right time it was a great home for uh for broadsoft uh you know the close up jim uh if uh you weren't uh the cfo if you weren't a partner at true north uh what would you have been doing a tennis player just 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 what do you think Definitely not a tennis player. I, I love the sport, and uh, I, 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 but I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more talented as a CFO. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, life takes you on uh, interesting journeys, and uh, um, I'll give you kind of a non-answer because I, I, I kind of like w w where I am and what I'm doing, and just having a an opportunity to work with uh, you and Andy and Mike and Scott again uh, and doing it in a really fun way with some companies we're excited about and being flexible enough uh, in, in how, how we work that I can do lots of fun things and, you know, travel and uh, sort of enjoy the life we built. That, that's pretty good. I would say that's excellent. So, you know, on that note, Jim, thank you for, uh, joining us today we certainly had some great learnings you know that that include you know whether you're private or public when it comes to the quarter do the right things uh for the business 
make sure that your senior management team is aligned and is working together effectively. Uh, and when it comes to acquisitions, make sure that it fits your overall strategy. Uh, so I think these were great, great learnings. Jim, thank you. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be posting our episodes every other week and follow us on LinkedIn. So Jim, thank you once again. Hey, thanks, Dino. Always great.